not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power weakness head on. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety over nine years ago in my blog Unpickled and in books like the Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide and my poetry collection The Ember Ever There. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for Shakesha K. Ellis, who has recently celebrated 10 years clean and sober, and she joins us today to tell us her story and share with us what her life is like today. Hi, Shakesha. It's so nice to have you here. How are you? I am so honored to be here, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. Well, I have been stalking you on the internet, story, <laughs> 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 and I'm really happy you're here. I think you have such an important message, and I'm gonna just have us get started by asking you to tell us about yourself and tell us your story. Yes. So my name is Chakasha K. Ellis, and I am a woman in long-term recovery. For 10 years, this past August the 8th, 2020, what a milestone. And I am the founder of ChaseTheMore.org, and I am also a state lead for Mobilize Recovery, which is a global um, United States program. They teach us how to connect with um, people on a congressional level so that we can help combat the opioid and overdose crisis in the United States. So I am a state lead for the second year in a row, and I am so honored to be here with you. So I want to start by by sharing my story of the fact that I, I am 48 years old, and I look pretty young for my age, but I, I just want to let people know the key things, factors about my addiction, that things that I didn't have. I didn't have the tools or the knowledge to have someone direct me for what happened. Everything was just, it happened so quickly. So I was 27 years old, I had a great life. I never used drugs in my entire 27 years at this time. This was in 2001. So I just wanna stress that certain situations that we encounter in our lives can kind of change the whole path. It's like a train on a track and you kind of become derailed from one simple thing that happened and you were just unaware of the consequences of the things that happened. So I was 27 years old. I had a, I had a great life. Um, I had no children. I was um, living my life modeling in New York City and having a great time. I had a great job as a behavior specialist, and I was working with at-risk youth and also youth with behavioral health issues. At my job, one day I fell, and I tore a meniscus. Um, I had a meniscus tear in one of my knee ligaments. And a doctor told me that I would have to get surgery. It was just like, okay, I had never had surgery before. And just like that, I wound up having to get a meniscus repair surgery, which 
I had to get put under general anesthesia. And so I got the surgery. And after the surgery, a doctor gave me a prescription for a medication called hydrocodone lorset. I always name the drug because there are so many different classes of opioids. And I know that a lot of people take different types of opioids for different situations. But I like to specify what pill I took because a lot of people are probably taking it and they don't know that how highly addictive that specific medication. But I'm, and basically that is a combination of hydrocodone and acetaminophen. The acetaminophen count for one pill was 650 milligrams. So a doctor prescribed me the hydrocodone and said, take one to two every four to six hours or as needed for your pain. And after my knee surgery, I had quite a lot of pain and my knee was very unstable. So I, I had never had any type of surgeries or injuries where I had to kind of depend on a medication to control the pain. And um, after I got my surgery, I was being prescribed the medication from Dr. A, and Dr. A is the doctor that did the surgery. Dr. A referred me to Dr. B, which was an osteopathic doctor of medicine, and he was a, th a therapist. So at his office, he was also writing narcotics and putting people in rehabilitation for their injuries. So I began to see Dr. B, but Dr. A was still writing me prescriptions for the lower set. So when I started taking them, I noticed within a short period of time that I just felt happy on this medication. Um, I don't know what to describe as happy, but I just felt motivated. Because at the time of my addiction, I wasn't in a situation where I was self-medicating from anything. I wasn't in a situation where I was dealing with a, um, a bad situation, a relationship. I wasn't dealing with um, failing grades at school or a stressful job. Everything was great in my life. And I started taking the Lord set, but I liked how motivated I felt when, when taking it. And this medication took away my pain. So I was just like, oh my gosh, I really like this. So Dr. A was prescribing the Lord set. He gave me 100 tablets the first visit after the surgery. I had to go back to see him about three weeks later to have the stitches removed. And then he gave me another 100 tablets of the Lorset. This was within one month of, of being prescribed this medication. Um, Dr. A never described to me that this is a, this is a narcotic medication um, and it can be highly addictive. So I guess Dr. A was leaning more towards the pharmacy um, prescription bottle saying, okay, taking more of this medication can be addictive or whatever the warning label labels were on the pill bottles. I started taking the medication, I loved it. And so my goal was to get more. So Dr. A was giving them to me and then I was going to see Dr. B for the rehabilitation part of my injury. And he was asking me, what are you taking for pain? And I said, Norset. So he started giving me the same pills from both doctors were prescribing me, Norset hydrocodone at the same time after my knee surgery. And I liked how they made me feel. I started noticing some things about my body that was pretty different. And that was kind of like um, a lot of itching and scratching when I, when I took them. Um, at, at some point in my addiction, I, I realized that I was taking one or two every four to six hours, but 
I wanted to up it. I wanted to up the ante. So I kind of said to myself, you know what? Since I feel this great today, let me just take an extra one. And, and you know, me being prompted to do that, I don't know where that came from because I never did any type of, of narcotic in my life. So I started taking more. And I, be, I went from one every four to six hours to two at one time every four to six or whatever hours, whatever I felt I wanted to take. And then three, and because I was getting both prescriptions from Dr. A and Dr. Dr. B, I was like, okay, I can, I can have enough pills to get through this time. What I didn't know as I look back is that I was in the early stages of an addiction, substance use disorder. I was, I was in the early phases because I was thinking about my medication all the time and I was putting it as a priority when it was only prescribed for me for pain, but I liked it because it made me happy and motivated. Fast forward, my life spiraled out of control and I would say between the year 2000 all the way up until 2009, my life turned into hell in a handbag. That's what we can call it. We call it hell in a handbag. My life turned upside down. I wound it up losing apartments, losing condominiums, losing selling my designer clothes. Because being a professional model, I was always into like designer stuff and I always liked to look nice. But I was finding that I was going through different type of symptoms throughout my, I'm, I'm saying addiction now because I didn't know that, that that was what I was going through at that time. Mm-hmm. But I was going through symptoms. Like, I was just like, I felt sick. I woke up with the sweats and diarrhea and vomiting. And I was like, okay, so I, I ran out of pills today, but I'm not going to see Dr. B again until one or two days later. So let me reach out to him and see if I can get an early refill. Let me see if the insurance company will cover that. Um, I kind of knew that I had a problem when I started feeling sick from not having the medication, but I did not know that was called withdrawal. I was, unbeknownst to me, I was in a, in a web and I did not know, I didn't have someone navigating or advocating and telling me, this is what you're going through. Um, you're taking this medication. How, how long have you been taking that? And you, you're itching your skin, you're vomiting in the morning, you're going through all these side effects. Like that's called withdrawal. I, I didn't know. So for the nine years, the timeline of my life, it shifted from being a model, hanging out with friends, working a full-time job. It it shifted to applying for welfare and Medicaid insurance that have medical insurance because I wanted to find another way to pay for my habit without the insurance company for my job. They They were paying for because the injury was, was sustained at work. So they were covering all my medical expenses throughout a certain time period. But I was seeking out additional ways for the medication to be paid for. So I wound up applying for Medicaid and I was on welfare. I was getting food stamps and I was buying food with the food stamps and I was taking my medical insurance and going to different doctors and I mean, my, my addiction spiraled so bad out of control that my life was just turned upside down in a matter of a short period of time. I was kind of on a dark road and picture being on a trip and we were like, we have a knapsack and we have water in the knapsack 
and we have basic necessities to get to the next point. My trip was a nine, nine years of hell, and I had a knapsack, but I was so addicted that I didn't have enough, I didn't have enough strength to go into my knapsack to get the information I needed to help myself. And nobody around me understood what I was dealing with because I was addicted in silence. There are so many Americans struggling with addiction that are functional, people that look great, women that are great moms, their kids are on soccer teams, um, their kids are in Ivy League schools, their kids are in college, and moms feel like I'm overwhelmed. I got this um, gastric bypass. I'm, I'm talking on, for another person. I got this gastric bypass surgery, or I got a knee replacement, or I got a hip replacement. And a doctor said, um, here's some Percocets. Take, take them as needed. And so you're, you're, you're a mom. You have children in college, or maybe you have younger children. And after the surgery, you got through that part, and then you started taking the, the uh, Percocets, and you felt like, wow, I like how these make me feel. But you're a person that never really looked into your predisposition or your family's history of addiction. That was the puzzle piece to my life that I figured out after I got off the pills. I, I learned five years after, after being in, in recovery that the Ellis side of my family had the addiction gene for certain type of narcotics. That is how my addiction spiraled out of control because I was 27 years old and I never did a drug. So I want to stress that it does not matter where a person is sitting in their lives. You could be in a beautiful house. You could have a great marriage, a great husband. Your kids could be in the best schools. Or you could be in the inner cities. You could be living in a 13-story high-rise with people right under you. And you can be struggling to wake up and fix your son, his oatmeal, until you pop five pills or, or shoot up some heroin. It's, it's so important that we understand that we have to change the language for addiction and that stigmas are killing people more than actual addiction. People are saying things like, um, oh, I've been in recovery for 10 years, I'm an addict, I'm a recovering addict, I'm, I'm a recovering pill head, I'm a recovering dope fiend, I'm a recovering this or that. I am stressing to people, because I am an ambassador for Shatterproof, we basically talk about breaking stigmas and I've done so, many, so much work with, with Shatterproof. They are a wonderful organization, and we teach people how to use the proper language when addressing addiction and mental health. Fast forward through my story. I was addicted to the opioids for nine years, and one day I had an epiphany, and this was my aha moment. The most powerful moment in my life came on August the 8th, 2010, I was sitting in my Land Rover truck on Route 611 in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. I had went to a giant supermarket to get a forged prescription pill. And when I walked into that supermarket, I had the prescription and I was desperate. I had, I had been going through about 12 hours of withdrawal because I had lost all my doctors. And I got to a point where I knew I get this prescription filled or tell you're going to die. You have to figure this out because nobody knew I was struggling. I did not have someone 
to say to me, um, Kay, what are you doing? Why are you always nodding everywhere you're going? Um, why are you always falling asleep? Why are you doing this? You're weird. Why are you withdrawing from us? You don't call us for a week, and then you call back when you're happy again. People didn't understand what I was dealing with, so I had to, I had to kind of save myself. I, I had an epiphany, an aha moment, where I was sitting in my truck, and when I left, when I walked into that giant supermarket pharmacy, I said to myself, okay, they're not going to feel this. They're taking too long. I'm scared. Why are they taking so long? So what I did was I walked out the pharmacy because I was going through this a lot towards the end of my addiction. My name was in every pharmacy system database. The doctors were like, okay, she's getting the same medication from multiple doctors in Bucks County, Montgomery County, New Jersey, upstate New York, New just everywhere. My name was I, was, I was what you call a diversion patient, a patient that gets the same medication from multiple sources. And, and that's really against the law when you're seeing a doctor, you're being prescribed opioids, they have a pain management agreement that you sign that says, we can, we can give you a test to make sure that this amount of medication is in your system and that you're not seeing any other doctors or you're not on any other substances to get this medication. I signed plenty of pain management agreements but did not know that, you know, this is what pain management is. I was sitting in my truck and I realized that they were going to call the cops and they probably called the cops because they were taking too long to come back and tell me if the script was still. I walked out of that pharmacy and I got in my truck. I was crying. My nose was running. I was vomiting. I was sweating. I was going through the early stages of the withdrawal. And I said to myself, okay, I have to figure this out. I basically got in my truck and I just, I surrendered. I prayed, I said a prayer, I said, I said, God, please help me because nobody knows what I'm dealing with and I need help and nobody understands what I'm dealing with and I'm, I am addicted and silent. So I realized that on that day, I made a step. I stepped out on faith and I tell people all the time that recovery is so possible and that all you need is faith the size of a mustard seed that is minute. That's very tiny. You need that tiny bit of faith to say, I'm helpless. I can't live like this no more. I want to have my job back. I want to get my wife and my husband back. I want to spend more time with my children. I want to be normal. I want to go to the ice cream store with my children and eat ice cream. I want to go shopping with my kids. I don't want to be withdrawal and chasing dealers and doctors and pharmacies. When I made that decision, it saved, I saved my life that day. My, my recovery started on August the 8th, I went home, I got on my couch, and I cold turkey. Let me, say, let me say this. I never recommend cold turkey for anyone. So if you're listening to this podcast right now, please understand this. Please don't think that you are able to cold turkey because I did it, because everybody's body is different. Your drug of choice is different. How long you've been on that drug makes a difference. Underlying medical conditions can make a difference. If you make it through, whether you die or whatever happens. So I'm telling people now, I cold turkey, but I did that, and it, it worked for me. Never do that without help or, or advice from a medical professional. So I went home on my couch, and my, my journey began. I called my mom and my dad. My dad is a bishop. I'm a woman that was raised in church as a little girl. And I'm, I'm, I'm a religious person. I'm not perfect, but I still have my religious background and my upbringing. My, my mom and dad, I, I text them because I was desperate. And I, I text my mom, I said, I was crying. I said, Mom, I can't do this no more. I lost all my doctors. 
and they called the cops on me. I don't know what's going to happen after this, but I'm weak. I, I can't physically do this anymore. I can't. And my mom texted me back. She said, okay, are you going to be okay tonight by yourself? And I said, yes. My mom said, me and your dad will be there tomorrow morning, first thing in the morning when we wake up. My mom and dad came to my house in Delaware, and my dad is a bishop. He passed away in 2017. But the best part about my dad is he had a lot of people praying for me, and we are religious people. I don't want to push my religion on any person because every person's higher being is different. But I know that my higher being was Jesus Christ because I was raised in a religious background. My dad came, and my dad calls me baby doll. I'm his baby doll. So he knew that I was in danger. He knew I was in crisis from looking at me. I was 97 pounds, and I had I, I went through severe withdrawal from, from cold turkey, them opioids. Let me just stress this in, in my message. The more pills you take, whatever your situation is, if you don't know your family's history, your body's tolerance will crave more. And my body's tolerance went from one every 46 hours to 35 pills a day. I'm going to say that again. 35 pills a day is why I, it took me so much to get off of them. And people look at me and say, how are you 97 pounds? And how are you taking that many pills? It's just like alcohol. Your body's tolerance. I know people that are 90-something pounds, and they drink like a fish, and they can tolerate. And I know people that are heavy set that are that weighing like 200-something pounds, and they can take a couple of shots and be like, oh, my God, I can't, even, I can't do this. So it depends on your body's tolerance, what the drug does. So when I got through my withdrawals, I called my mom and my dad. My dad, they came the next morning. They told me to get on my hands and knees. I was like, I can't. I can't do this right now. And then my dad was like, get on your hands and knees. And I got on my hands and knees. And my dad took holy oil and he poured it on my forehead. And he put a cross there. And he said, we're going to pray you through this. We're gonna, you're going to get delivered from this addiction. And him and my mom prayed me through it. They prayed me. They prayed with me. My mom was holding my hand. My dad had his hand on my head. And he was praying for me. I was crying. He said, surrender. Surrender everything. Realize that you don't have no control right now. You have no power. And I just let go. I surrendered that day. I let all my burdens go, and I realized that I was helpless. And my journey started on that day. So I want to tell people, I don't know what your higher being is, but I know that there's a higher being for people out here, whatever it may be. You might just come to a situation where your life flashes before your eyes, and you realize that no, no one else saw my life flash before my very eyes but me. So I'm the only person that can make this choice right now. So that was my journey. And my mom and my dad, my dad went back home. My mom stayed with me for, for two days. I had restless leg syndrome and restless arm syndrome. I was very, very sick for a month. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I, I hadn't driven my car in a month. My mom started giving me Gatorade, and I started drinking that throughout the days. I still had restless leg syndrome, and um, I had severe paranoia and all these other symptoms. So my mom decided that I was okay. Like, I, I got through the vomiting and, and all that physical stuff, but I was still going through a lot of mental stuff with, the, you know, cold turkey. And, and so my mom said, I'm going home now. Are you going to be okay? I said, yes, Mom. As long as I'm able to walk up and down the steps and give myself a bath and all these things. I, can, I was able to care for myself physically again after a couple of weeks. 
So my mom went home. I then began to feel better. But it was two weeks later, my, I text my mom crying. I said, Mom, Mom, please help me. I, I'm just, I feel crazy. I can't sleep at night. It's like I'm going to sleep and I'm having all these crazy dreams and I'm sleeping for, for, for eight hours. When I wake up, it was actually 20 minutes. My mom was like, that's called restlessness. I was like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. I understand why people get Suboxone and, and Subutex. And, I mean, these different medications, I didn't get that because I, I texted my mom and I asked her, I said, Mom, can you please find a place that can administer that to me? Because your body has to go through a certain amount of time without the drug. Because if they give you that medication while you're still withdrawing, you can go into withdrawal times 100. Said she called to Boston Clinic all over New Jersey and New York. And they were like, we don't have, we have a waiting list. So it's going to take about two weeks and it's going to be $400 for the first visit. So my mom called, texted me back. She said, Kay, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to kind of wait this out because they, they're saying two more weeks. I kept, I kept trucking. I kept on trucking with it, and I never um, needed just a boxing. I wound it up saying to my mom, Mom, I'm okay. I'm, I'm getting through this. I'm, I'm getting through this process. But when I got through the physical part, I felt fearless. And when I was able to drive my car again, I felt fearless. I felt like, wow, I can get in my Land Rover and drive to the market for myself. And now my life is great. My, people ask me how I sustained long-term recovery for 10 years. And I tell them that my road to recovery I didn't have a, a navigator. I didn't have a system telling me, this is, what, this is what you should expect. This is what's going to happen. This is what you should do. I had to walk that road blindfolded, and I didn't know what to expect. But once I went through the pink cloud happy moment being off the opioid, then I realized that I had to deal with all my life stuff. All my junk was settling back in my trunk, and I had to deal with all of that stuff. <laughs> All of my junk in my trunk, I had to realize that, okay, you have to deal with this stuff without opioids. So I was just like, that was a whole different transition for me after going through my recovery. But I am, I am happy that I'm in recovery. I'm happy that I took that chance. I'm happy that I'm able to give people hope. I want to mention that I'm fully deaf and I have cochlear implants. I'm a bilateral cochlear implant, implantation, and I know I didn't talk about this in my story, but in 2009, I started losing my hearing and learned that because of the amount and the length of time of the opioids I was ingesting, it, it kind of made my hearing go bad. My hearing, my, my, my hearing kind of, I went deaf. I went deaf in like eight months. So it's so important that we realize that recovery is possible, but I did everything from the muscle, I did everything just saying to myself, Kay, how are you going to get through this next step? Um, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do that? I, I didn't know how anything was going to happen. I just played it by ear. I got through it. I became a public figure on, in 2014. My story graced the front page of a newspaper. And everyone was like, oh, my God, Kay went deaf. So people didn't know how I went deaf. They didn't know what the cause of it was. When I, I had to explain to people that it was a, called an opioid-associated otoxicity, which is like a complication from the exposure. Opioids suppress everything in your body. And if you're taking them for long periods of time, they can, they can cause you cause hearing loss. And they say it's rare, but I know people that have went through hearing loss from the opioids. So I'm happy. My life is great. I had my first child at age 41. 
I had my first baby at age 41, and I was deaf, okay? I was fully deaf. I didn't have cochlear implants. I did not have them. I was, people were writing everything down on, on sticky notes. I walked around. They called me Miss Sticky Notes. <laughs> I used to walk around, and I had sticky notes, and I used to be like, people used to talk to me. I used to be like, what? I'm deaf. And they used to think because I spoke normal that I could hear. And I say, please, write it on a sticky note. So people started writing. But when I found out I was pregnant with my son, I was like, oh, no, this is crazy. How did this happen? <laughs> and so I found out I was having my first baby at 41. He was born at 24 weeks gestation. I had him on the back of an ambulance, and I was deaf. I was having contractions for three days at my house, and the hospital kept sending me home. They were like, she's not going to have this baby. But I had my son on the back of an ambulance on Route 38 and Hartford Road in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. When he came out and my water broke, I picked him up and I looked at him. I was like, oh, my gosh, my baby. I looked at him. He was one pound and ten ounces. He was so And he was trying to open his eyes. So I got to the ER. They took him and put him in, in the NICU. My son spent six months in the NICU. I was deaf the whole time. The doctors at CHOP Philadelphia, I love them with all of my heart. They were my family. And the doctors at Virtual Voorhees in New Jersey, they were my heart. They were my family. The, the radiologists, the, the, um, the people that took, the, took his oxygen. So he, my son had surgery, multiple blood transfusions, all these different things. When he came home, he was seven pounds. I had his little chunky butt in a car seat. And I was like, come on, mommy taking you home to the boy. So I put my baby in the car seat, and I was deaf the whole time. Fast forward till he was two. When he was two years old, I, I got my first cochlear implant surgery so I could hear his voice for the very first time. And I was like, oh, my God, I was so nervous. I had gotten the first tuning for the first cochlear implant, and I was scared. I was like, oh, my God, is he going to understand what I'm saying? Do he understand that mommy is deaf? I, didn't, I never heard his voice. And so I came home, and I said, hi, sweet baby. And he was looking at me like I was crazy. I said, hi. And so he said, bubbles, bubbles, bubbles. And I, that was it for me. That, that was the motivation and the, the story of my life, the fact that I had went through all of that with my baby and that he's now, I can now hear his voice for the first time. So Aww. he's eight years old now. He's my motivation for being sober. And I just want to say this as I end in my talk that, the biggest part of my motivation was and is is sharing my story with people and, and reaching out to people, just like strangers, people on the streets, and sharing my story and, and giving people hope, letting them know that you can look beautiful, you can look handsome, you can have it all and be struggling with addiction. Substance use disorder can change the game for a person. And we have to, we have to recognize the symptoms and signs because some people don't even know they're addicted. Like I didn't know. I was. I didn't recognize the symptoms and signs that I had myself. So I like giving that awareness out, and that's part of my recovery, giving people hope and being a part of Mobilize Recovery. Now I'm a public figure, so I'm like, okay, my days are like podcasts and Zoom meetings. Mobilize Recovery is a, is a special thing because I am a state leader for New Jersey, and basically I'm working with congressional leaders in my county and we are trying to make a difference in the lives of people with, with opioid abuse. And also, I'm a woman, a, a woman of color in recovery. 
so I'm also navigating for our black communities because I want people to see a black woman that came from humble beginnings and now I'm on a congressional level. They know my face, they know my story, and they met me before. So I'm encouraging people to realize that recovery, recovery is, is very real and very possible. And we just, we just have to realize that in the midst of our madness, it might be a moment that we see and we have to react on it at that time. And that is what can save your life. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm so glad that you're here to share your story because the uh, amount of drugs that you were taking and the condition of your health, I'm I'm guessing your life was pretty precarious towards the end. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you survived and thrived and are sharing your story now with others. It strikes me as ironic that as the child of uh, a preacher and parents that were very strict and very protective of you, in the Mm -hmm. end, it was your innocence and your unawareness of addiction that allowed it to take you by surprise. And it goes to show how important it is that we do share our stories. And so I'm, I'm grateful that you're shining your light in the way that you are and making sure that people have awareness about the dangers of something as simple as prescribed medication for a mm-hmm. routine injury that could happen to anyone. I hear people say, and it frustrates me so much, is when they think that mm-hmm. addiction is a choice. So what do you say yes. to someone who is misinformed in that way and thinks that addiction is a choice? What do you say to that? What I want to say about that is that addiction does not discriminate. And we have to, we have to look. It's, it's all a part of the stigmas. The stigmas is a big part of it. And we have to realize that at the end of the day, anybody can be addicted. I have talked to all different sorts of people that were addicted to opioids, police officers, teachers, little old women in the pharmacy that was getting their prescriptions filled. There has been so many different types of people. And I I just want to say that addiction can creep up. Addiction can creep up on you. Addiction can creep up on you. Unbeknownst to you, like me, I didn't know the motivation behind me loving the pill was because of my family's history and my family's predisposition because my mother never did drugs ever. So I knew that the story she told me about some people on my father's side of the family, that that was probably why I loved Lorisette and carried it on for all those years. So I'm, I'm saying to people, let's break the stigmas and let's stop talking about things like, well, you have all this money, or you look good, or you're popular, or you're a DJ, or you're a rapper, or you're a singer, or you're a model. All these different types of people have suffered with addiction. And we have to, we have to go way back and look at Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson. We have to look at people like Natalie Cole and all these singers that I'm into R&B and blues music. I like, like 80s and 90s music. So I know a lot of singers from my era growing up that suffered with substance use disorder. And I know that Shaka Khan and Natalie Cole struggled with addiction their whole careers, and nobody even knew what it was back then. Yeah. I just want people to understand that addiction does not discriminate. It does not matter what you look like and what your, what your status is, what your religion is, or any of that. I think as you describe your experience and you talk about the discomfort of withdrawal, I think that's really a reminder, too, that addiction isn't fun. It's basically avoiding withdrawal. 
I mean, it's managing the avoidance mm. of withdrawal. And that became yes. your full-time job, really, right? That was, that was my full-time you know, job, pharmacies, doctors, and, and pharmacies and doctors. That was it. That was how I, I every, every pill I ever took, I never purchased pills off the streets. I always got a doctor's prescription. A doctor wrote it on a prescription pad, and I took it to a pharmacy, and a pharmacy filled it. Now, was it a hard decision for you to decide to get the cochlear implant knowing that it would require surgery and that you would potentially need pain medication to manage that? How did you go about talking to your doctor about that and trying to reduce the risk of being exposed again to the same kind of situation that caused your addiction in the first place? This is, the, this is a great question because I love, absolutely love my team of doctors. They're from Rutgers, New Jersey. They're, they're, the hospital is a, it's the university hospital, but it's in, it's in Newark. The process took almost a year. You have to go through all types of medical testing, and at the end of it, before you get the actual surgery, you have to be seen by a psychologist. And they want to make sure that you have reasonable expectations of that surgery. Because I have met people that have gotten the surgery and they still couldn't hear. It's a five-hour procedure. And they have to go into your inner ear and rewire everything. They have to drill a spot to put a whole nother hearing device inside, it's like a magnet. And that surgery takes five hours. So I was scared to death. But when I realized that I was becoming more public with talking about my story, People were saying to me, you have to be able to hear. What if you go on a talk show? Or what if someone says, hey, we want to bring you here to speak? You have to be able to hear people. My motivation to, to help others to share my story was the motivation behind me getting the surgery and being fearless with that because I had, had never gotten any surgery since being clean. My doctor, his name is Dr. Jung. I love him so much. There was a team of doctors from Rutgers University. Dr. Jung, I love you guys so much. And my audiologist is Nicole Rea. These two people were part of my journey of hearing again. And they felt like you guys felt about my story. It was like, oh, wow, we want you to hear your son's voice for the first time. You never heard his voice? And I said, never. I never heard my son's voice. My son's name is Houston. I named him after the city of Houston, but after Whitney Houston. So they were saying, um, you, you know, we want you to hear Houston's voice. So the first factor they factored in with my surgery was the pain medication after the surgery. So Dr. Jung had a meeting with me and I said to him, if I have to get on opioids for this, I will stay there first. And he said mm -hmm. to me, no, 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 Ms. K no, 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 I understand what you're saying. You can take Tylenol. I'll, I'll write you some Tylenol that's non-narcotic and take that after your surgery. But you might not have no, you might not have no pain from this. It's like the part of your head right above the top of your ear is where they cut. They have to shave your head, and that whole spot is where they go into, and they rewire the whole inner ear section. And they put magnets and things there and wires and all this other stuff. So I got the surgery. Um, the first the cochlear implant I got was 2013, and that was the best decision I ever made in my life. And I never had to take any narcotics. I, I didn't even take a prescription for what he, for what he wanted to write me, but... I wound up having Tylenol from a drugstore, 650 milligram Tylenol, and I only needed that for maybe a couple of days after. And I went back, it took the bandages off, and I had to let it heal. I couldn't blow my nose. 
for a month. I couldn't sneeze. I had to press all. I'm like, how do you not sneeze? So I was like, oh, my gosh. My psychological mind was still kind of like suppressed because once they go into your inner ear, your, your natural, whatever's left, you don't have that. You have to totally rely upon the implant. So he said, when I do this surgery, you're not going to hear no muffling. It's not going to be nothing now. You're going to be totally, when you take them implants off, you're not going to hear anything. So I said, I'm willing to take that chance. Um, I waited three more years to get the left side done. When you're going to get cochlear implants, you have to get them. It's like hip replacements. If both your hips are bad, you don't wait three years and get both surgeries. You get one done in one year, and maybe another year later or six months, you get the other side done so they can recover together. And it's the same thing with the implants. So I got my second side done in 2016. So I have been hearing bilateral since 2016, successfully. I hear music, I dance, and I used to be a DJ, so all I do is dance. I'm, I'm the dancing, singing, rapping mom. <laughs> and I'm guessing that you never run out of gratitude for everything that you hear, knowing the time you spent without being able to do that. Five years. Um, I, I was there for five years. Man. And I was reading that the reason that the opioid um, addiction can affect hearing loss is because it affects the blood flow to the ear. So the circulation can be affected and then over time that can can cause the hearing loss. So I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was uh, one possible outcome of addiction. So that was something I learned today. And yes. I can only imagine how glad you are to have not only beat addiction, but also to have your hearing back. I understand that you're working on a memoir, and that can be quite a profound experience. Have you had any aha moments as you're writing your story and understanding your life as a, a whole? Are you learning new things about yourself? Yes. This is the first time experience for me to go through what I went through. I'm just like a, like a person blindfolded walking through my life. And I'm still yeah. dealing with a lot of different things with, from the opioid use disorder that I don't even know, like memory loss. I have so many different situations that I think attributed to that. But as, I, as I'm writing my memoir, I'm going through days where I'm having emotional moments. And, and sometimes people say, when you're able to share your story without tears, that's a sign of strength. That means you're healing from it. You're strong. But I find that even being in recovery for 10 years, when I'm revisiting chapters of my life, I get emotional. Like I, I talk to my son, Houston, all the time, and I, he understands addiction. He understands that mommy was addicted to opioids for a very long time. I said, mommy was addicted to opioids as old as you are. I'm telling him that mommy had a, mommy had a rough life. And she did what she could, and you wasn't born when mommy was going through all the stuff she was going through. So I had, as, as I'm writing my memoir, I'm, I'm reverting back to all, all of the times, and it's like 10 years is a decade. That's a long time. If you picture a kid from being born to age 10, you have to look back and say, that's a long period of time to be going through an addiction. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I kind of use that timeline to realize that my life is stagnant, was stagnant for all them years because I was addicted. I wasn't taking trips. I wasn't getting on flights. I was only getting on flights to get pills from doctors in different states, but I had never been in a situation where I had to regroup from addiction, from a 10-year addiction, and then go back to my life. Like, that's something you just learn and you, you're just walking along. So as I'm writing my memoir, I'm like, 
emotional. And I'm like, if I ride down Levick Street in Northeast Philadelphia, I'm thinking about all the Rite Aids I was going to. I had five Rite Aids within the same radius I was getting the same scripts from. I had different drugstores like Walgreens within feet away. And I was just like, every time I ride through them roads, I go back, my mind goes back. But you know what? The gratitude is overwhelming. And I'd be so happy and, and, and joyful and, and like, you know what? I just like touching people and giving them my energy. Like put my hand mm-hmm. on the person and say, you can recover. You can recover. You can get through this. Like look at my life. I was weighing 97 pounds. I am 148 pounds right now. Plus I've been in quarantine since March. <laughs> So I've been eating a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> we all have. <laughs> Before I yes. let you go, I want you to talk a little bit about your website, chasenomore.org, and the work that you do as a certified family recovery specialist and an interventionist. Talk about the work that you do and uh, how people can find you and connect with you. When I got off the opioids, I sat down one day, I had another epiphany, and I said, Kay, your life was spent chasing pills and doctors for 10 years. Now you're not chasing anymore. So you have to establish something. It's like you have to put, send the ladder down for all the other people that are struggling. You can't climb above something and not send the ladder back down. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting my hand out and I'm saying, hey, if anybody needs any advice, I'm not a medical professional and I'm in the process of getting my peer recovery coach license. My message is this, what I do on my websites, and I advocate for people. I was doing this since 2014. I reach, people reach out to me on my social media platform. I have two Facebook pages. One is my first name, Shakesha K. Ellis, and it's my first name. It's spelled C-H-E-K-E-S-H-A. My middle name is K, K-A-Y, last name Ellis, E-L-L-I-S. My, one of my Facebook pages is Shakesha K. Ellis. I have another page. It's K. Ellis. It's K-A-Y-E-L-L-I-S. So I have two pages on Facebook. I'm going to wound up doing a public figure page at some point, but those are my two pages. My Instagram is Shakesha K. Ellis. My social media platforms are my, is my first, my middle, and last name. And my advocacy is part of my recovery and give other people hope to keep pushing so my website is chasenomore.org. Chase no more is one word. And I got that name because when I got off the opioids, I said, I'm not chasing no more. I'm not. I won't ever. I can't do this again. It took too much for me. Ten years of my life was stole from addiction, and I'm now I'm not chasing anymore. So my website and my foundation helps people. Um, I help people get into program, treatment programs. I am a state leader for New Jersey for mobilized recovery. And so I have people from every state that I can call and say, hey, some woman reached out to me from Wisconsin. She needs treatment. Okay, I'm going to reach out to the state lead from that state. And so Mobilize Recovery is my bubble and my resources. So I have so many connections where I can get people places to treatment or whatever they need, and I'm always available to talk to people. And I say this as I end. All it takes is faith the size of mustard seed and a conversation to say, Inbox me and say, hey, this is my story. Um, I, I need help. I don't know where to start. What, what options do I have? And I can help navigate from there. That's what Chase No More is all about. Thank you for sharing your story and shining your light. 
I love that you yeah. use the word bubble to describe the work that you do and that your son's first words you heard him say were bubble, 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 <laughs> and that here you are on the bubble hour. <laughs> yes, I love it. What a divine connection. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was meant to be. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great getting to know you and uh, listeners. You can definitely reach out to Shakesha K. Ellis at the uh, sites she mentioned, I'll put all those links in the show notes. So that's all for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode. And until then, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Head on me. In a dark corner is where shame likes to hide. We oh, you think you're strong just cause you'll keep it on the side. It just stays in wait there to rob you of your pride. Turn the light on, turn the light on, you can shine. When you see I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Just want to